Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O C-O. So, you may have heard the news. Buffalo Trace is getting rid of their nationwide distributor, RNDC. Will Pappy Van Winkle, Buffalo Trace Antique Collection, and other allocated bottles be back on the shelves? Well, if you want to find out, stick around. So before we get started, I want to remind everybody out there, this content's absolutely free. Feel free to subscribe to the page. But if you're looking for a little bit extra, you want to get some bonus content behind the scenes, things like that, maybe some barrel picks, live in-person events, some online events, go on over to our Patreon and check it out, Bourbon Real Talk Plus. We'd love to have you as a member. And before we get too deep into the episode, I'd like to say a special thank you to Rory Love, who hails from Hawaii, for giving me this show idea. So first off, let's talk about the connection. Sazerac Corporation is the owner of Buffalo Trace, as well as Barton 1792. But we all know Buffalo Trace because they make many of the highly allocated products. Um, And a lot of people are asking, is this going to affect my ability to find those things? Probably the most famous of the Buffalo Trace products are going to be the Van Winkle line. So that's the old Rip Van Winkle, Lot B, Pappy 15, 20, and 23, as well as the Buffalo Trace Antique Collection. That's George T. Stagg, William LeRue Weller, Eagle Rare 17, Saz 18, Thomas H. Handy. They also make Blanton's, Rockhill Farms, Elmer T. Lee, and many other allocated products. And the distributors are going to be changing in 29 total states for all of those allocated bottles. So just so that you understand the framework of all of this, uh, since Prohibition, distilleries have not been able to sell direct to the public, to liquor stores, bars, or restaurants, because they have to go through either a three or a four tier system. So in each state, with the exception of Washington, D.C., you have to have a wholesaler that represents you for to bring product into that state. And there are three tier states and four tier states. So The first tier is the producer, the second tier is the wholesaler, the third tier is usually a retail store. But in three tier states, the wholesaler sells to the retail stores, bars, and restaurants. In four tier states, the wholesaler sells to the retailer, and the retailer sells to bars and restaurants like we do here in Texas. Now I happen to know a little bit about this because part of my responsibility with the Prideful Goat has been to negotiate distribution agreements in new states. And there are two large nationwide distributors, Republic National Distributing Corporation and Southern Glaciers Wine and Spirits. And those are the big boys. And most of the really large producers are with one of the two. And Buffalo Trace was with Republic National, what we call RNDC, up until now. Um, Now, they ended up switching in 21 individual states to a different wholesaler. Um, and we're going to talk a, a bit in a minute. They have forward integrated to kind of be their own wholesaler in eight states. And we're going to talk about how that is possible. So there are basically three different types of states. The first, easiest to understand, are control states. And in control states, the state government owns everything from beginning to end with regard to liquor in their state. So everything is state owned. The liquor stores are owned by the state and they control everything. 
Uh, the second type are what we call non-franchise states, and those states are open for business. Producers can do business with anybody that they, any wholesaler that they want to in the state. They can fire them if they're unhappy, and so on and so forth. And then there are what they call franchise states. And in franchise states, there's laws on the books that protect the wholesaler from the producer leaving them. So back in the day, there were some really large beer producers that had gone into a state, worked out a relationship with the wholesaler, and they started putting pressure on them to lower their pricing. Uh, the wholesaler said that they didn't want to do it. They fired them and it ended up bankrupting the company, causing a bunch of unemployment. And so the states put laws on the books that said, hey, once you pick a wholesaler, you kind of got to stick with them. And those are what we call franchise states. So you can understand what all states are being affected. I'm going to list them off. So first off, we have Alaska, Arizona, California, Florida, Hawaii, Indiana, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maine. Maryland, Mississippi, Nebraska, New Hampshire, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Texas, Vermont, Washington, D.C., and West Virginia. And I mentioned earlier there are control states, and in the control states of Alabama, Idaho, Montana, North Carolina, Oregon, Utah, Virginia, and Wyoming, they're going to be moving forward to be effectively their own importer. So if you live in any of those states, you are going to be affected by this change. In franchise states where you can't easily make a change, it's very difficult to get out of those contracts. And I find it interesting that of all the states that Buffalo Trace is making this change in, only two of the 21 states were franchise states. So understanding the power dynamics between the different tiers is going to help us understand why Buffalo Trace probably ended up making this change. So first of all, most of the rules that control all of this are about keeping one side from having an advantage over another. Wholesalers for years have had a very powerful lobby that have been able to block any rule changes that would allow a producer from selling direct to the consumer, retailers, bars, or restaurants. So that's one rule that could come into play here. But the one that I think is more important in understanding this situation is a rule that protects retailers from any influence from the producer or the wholesaler. They're not allowed to tell them what to price their bottles at. They're not allowed to retaliate against them if they do something that they didn't like. So along with the rule about there not being any influence over the retailer, there's a rule about something called inducements. And an inducement is effectively where a wholesaler connects the purchase of one product to the purchase of another product, i.e. I won't let you buy product A unless you buy X amount of product B. And that is technically illegal and it is a very common practice in the industry. Hey, nice hat. Hey, thanks. Nice lanyard. Nice rocks glass. Thanks, man. Nice travel case. Nice blend topper. Thank you. Nice candle. Nice bottle bag. Thanks, man. That's a nice tumbler. Nice woman's t-shirt. Oh, thanks. Nice uh, extra schmedium shirt. Get yourself some nice things and get all the compliments that come along with it. Shop bourbonrealtalk.com. So my opinion as to why this change is multifold, and part of it has to do with inducements, uh, but I think probably one of the main things is, is that Buffalo Trace products are a lot easier to sell today than they used to be. 
I would imagine that their contract with RNDC was set during a time when Buffalo Trace still needed field representation for them to get their products out there and on shelves. But at this point, if you sell Buffalo Trace products, you're just an order taker. And I could imagine that Buffalo Trace has enough leverage in the market now that when they signed those new distribution agreements, they were able to get a much lower margin, i.e. they could sell it to the wholesaler for a higher price the wholesaler is going to sell it to the retailer, making less money than RNDC would have, and the product ends up on the shelves at the same price that you, the consumer, are used to paying it. So part of it was probably profit. Another reason that I think they may have been interested in, in switching is because they had all their eggs in one basket. So if they hear about a problem in a particular region and they decide they're going to make a change, it's, it could potentially trickle over and affect other regions where they previously didn't have problems. And as a business owner, you do SWOT analysis, and that seems like an area of risk that they'd want to take care of. But I think the main thing goes back to that problem of inducements. There were so many reports of RNDC using Sazerac products as an inducement to push and sell non-Sazerac brands. So imagine that. You have built up your brands and now they can't even be put on shelves because they have to be hidden in the back. That's how in demand they are. The salesperson's getting a fat margin off of your product not have to do any effort to sell it. And then you start getting reports that when they go into the liquor store, they're refusing to even sell your product to the store unless that store buys a bunch of product from another brand that you don't own any part of. I think that'd be a pretty strong motivator for them to move away from RNDC. The other thing is, is that because inducements are technically illegal, what types of stores do you think are most likely to bow to that pressure? Well, stores that kind of have loose morals, if you will. And what do stores with loose morals do whenever they get a really nice bottle of Van Winkle? Do they sell it for MSRP? No, they mark it up. And I think that part of their reason for wanting to switch away from RNDC was to shift their inventory away from really high-priced bars and restaurants because it was just out of the reach of the common consumer, and also to get the products out of the hands of the price gougers. So why would Buffalo Trace even care if their products were in the hands of price gougers or at really high-priced bars and restaurants? Well, we've talked about this before, but Buffalo Trace spent $1.3 billion to increase production. And at some point, that inventory is gonna come online. And I can assure you that the reason why they have not already raised their prices, because everybody knows that they could, is because their pricing models show that if they raise their prices now, whenever the new inventory comes online, there's not gonna be enough demand to sell all of that inventory at the higher price. And then they'd have to lower the price, which as we know, would devalue the brand and potentially cause a glut of inventory, which they don't wanna go through again because we just came out of it from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So that brings us to the main point here. Will you be able to find Pappy and other allocated Buffalo Trace products on the shelves now that they're making this switch? And the short answer is no, but we may see more products go to retailers than bars and restaurants than we've seen in the past because RNDC has a tendency to weight their inventory towards the stores that are doing the greatest volume. 
And the stores that are doing the greatest volume are typically the stores in four tier states that sell most of the product to the high-end bars and restaurants. So if this inventory ends up getting distributed through the smaller wholesalers who happen to have better relationships with independent mom and pop stores, there may be more product going to those types of stores and potentially to those stores that are not price gouging. So overall, I think we're gonna see fewer games being played with the Buffalo Trace inventory. And there's kind of a side benefit that I thought of when I started thinking about what the effect is gonna be. And that is small brands like the Prideful Goat, right? Because we're not on RNDC's radar right now. But some of the distributors, in fact, one of the distributors that's in the list to pick up some of the Sazerac products is a distributor for the Prideful Goat. And from my perspective, my brand may end up benefiting because of this shift, because now stores are gonna be more willing to talk to those mid-tier wholesaler brand reps because they're trying to get access to the Buffalo Trace products. And they may be a little bit more open to hearing the other sales pitches that the rep has to bring to them, simply because they wanna be in their good graces to get access to the allocated bottles. So the, this may actually be a good thing for the industry as a whole. I think inventory is going to be going to better retailers. You as the consumers are gonna have a better customer service experience. It's gonna be in alignment more with Buffalo Trace's long-term financial goals. And it's gonna give them more control to take action whenever we start to see inappropriate behavior out there between the wholesaler and the retailer. So I hope that clears things up for you. Unfortunately, it's not gonna make there be more bottles, but it could make things a little bit better. If this is your first time tuning into the show, I'd like to thank you for the view and let you know a little bit about our show philosophy. And that is, we like to bring people together around bourbon. And that's something that is personally important to me because I lost a loved one to suicide in 2014. In the aftermath of that, I was looking for opportunities to create connection and community so that other people didn't have to feel alone the way that my brother did when he decided to take his life. And I started noticing the connective power of bourbon and how it brought people together, even people that would normally not cross paths in their normal lives. And I decided that I wanted to help increase that connection. And so that's part of the reason why I started the podcast, because I figure if I can get you connected to whiskey, the whiskey will do the rest of the job and get you connected to others so that you don't feel alone. But as I started going down that path and looking for opportunities, I saw kind of a negative side of the whiskey enthusiast community, and that's the whiskey trolls. And I saw a lot of people being hateful to strangers online, which was counterproductive to the goal. And it made me realize, one, I needed to start Bourbon Real Talk community so that we had a forum where people could meet each other and engage and not have to worry about all of that nonsense and drama. But two, it made me realize that if that person can hate you online, even though they don't really know you, there's nothing that keeps me from loving you online, even though I don't really know you. And that's why I end every podcast the same way. And that's this. If you woke up this morning and you were unsure whether or not anyone loved you, just know that I love you. And I'll see you next time on Bourbon Real Talk. A whiskey troll is a person who seeks negative attention and uses contrarian attitudes to derail civil discussion in online forums. 
They communicate in ways they never would face to face because they're keyboard warriors. Their only goal is to make other people feel inferior. Hey guys, I'm new here. I just got my first Blanton's. And trust me, you probably paid way too much. I don't care much about the Blanton's, but nice <laughs> There's no way that she didn't buy that at secondary. Idiot. Oh, I know how you got that bottle. So, are you sick and tired of the whiskey trolls running your fun online? Well, that's why we started Bourbon Real Talk Community. Congratulations. Let me know what you think when you open it up. Hey, welcome to the group. Let me send you over a sample of Blanton's Gold and straight from the barrel. See how you like those. I remember back to my first bottle of Blanton's. It was the birthday to my son, and we enjoy it every year on his birthday. Congrats. So if you're looking to connect with some people online who aren't head over to facebook.com and join Bourbon Real Talk community today.